listening to Chugga Talk with Ryan Murphy, a podcast by Pull Across Made Simple. This episode is brought to you by Saucy Farm, and I'm extremely excited to announce a huge event that's happening October 22nd through 24th at their place in Wiggins, Mississippi. It's the first ever Saucy Farm Sale and Polo Cross Incentive Competition. You heard it, the very first Australian stock horse sale of its kind in the United States, along with the first ever Australian stock horse only Polo Cross Incentive Competition. We'll also be having working equitation classes. There will be tremendous prizes and money to fight for. It's just going to be an awesome weekend to be a part of. Whether you have a first cross or a heritage Australian stock horse, you're invited to be a part of this tremendous event. Stay tuned for more information and please save the date October 22nd through 24th of this year. Saucy Farm and Australian stock horses, the breed for every need. You can find them on Facebook or call 228-263-0930. Are you a Polo Cross related business? Chucka Talk has a truly global audience. To learn more about advertising here, email me at ryan at polocrossmadesimple.com. Space is limited. Personal fitness is so important in the sport of polo cross. Although we can't all look like Stefan Harris, we could all be working towards our own fitness goals. I've learned through personal experience that having a community of friends that share their fitness and nutrition ideas and activities truly can motivate others to follow suit. A rising tide raises all the ships in the harbor. Please join the American Polo Cross Association's fitness community today on Facebook groups. It's called American Polo Cross Fitness Group. It's hosted by the APA's Player Development Program and open to members worldwide. If you see Steph Harris, please encourage him to join for abs motivation. Again, it's a Facebook group called American Polo Cross Fitness Group. Get pumped! On this episode of Chugga Talk, You'll meet Daniel Johnson, former American Polo Cross Association Chief Umpire. This is part two of Daniel's rules discussion where he goes through the penalties section of the APA's standards of play. Here on Chugga Talk, the goal is to shrink the polo cross world by connecting people together and most importantly to provide education by interviewing players from all over the world. So listen closely and enjoy. All right, welcome, welcome. This is Daniel Johnson, uh, former chief umpire of the APA. We are going over the rule book. This is the second installment. The first one was just the definitions and some of the beginning parts of the book. This time, we're going to go over the penalty section, and then there's a couple other little rules that tie in with the penalty section that I think is appropriate. The penalty section is near and dear to my heart. You'll see throughout the book there are references to penalties either 1 through 7 on several of the fouls that can occur to give you an idea as an umpire what the correct uh, penalty to call for a certain foul. If you start at section 4, penalties, there's a, a little paragraph at the top that's probably the most important thing as an umpire, period, and it says... These penalties are to discourage illegal and or dangerous behavior. In the event a penalty is not an advantage to the fouled side, the penalty should be escalated to the next highest penalty if appropriate. The umpire has 
the discretion to increase the severity of the penalty. So these penalties are a guide to what the appropriate award to give a, uh, a team that has been fouled, but depending on the severity of the foul or the how often the foul is happening um, or just where the game is, if giving that team this award, if you award them a penalty, but it's not in that circumstance actually a benefit to them, it's not giving them an advantage, then the penalty is not doing its job as a punishment and as a deterrent. In fact, in those cases, you'll have the opposition intentionally create a penalty or create a foul that causes a penalty that doesn't give that advantage. So we have to see when that's occurring and escalate it. Some examples of when this can happen is if there's a player that you call for a wild swing or a dangerous swing and it happens multiple times during the game, then it's obvious that that award that you're giving the other team is not a deterrent and we need to award a bigger award to hopefully change the behavior of that player on the field. So instead of a wild swing, just moving the ball up, you might at a certain point decide it's more appropriate to give a free goal every time they wild swing and really put a stop to whatever the action is that you're trying to stop. Another time this might happen is if a number one gets a quick snap out of the lineup, races to the 30 yard line, the number three is held back, you may have a player intentionally interfere as the number one is crossing over the 30 yard line in order to stop the play, get their number three in position, uh, assuming that it might be a 10-yard throw awarded where they interfered, given to the number one. That's an advantage to them, and they may strategically try to do something wrong in order to help themselves. And we have to make sure that if they do something wrong, it is not to their advantage. In fact, in that situation, instead of an interference would normally just give a 10-yard throw from the spot where it occurred, in that situation, that would be a disadvantage to the fouled side. And so in, the, in that circumstance, you may move it up to a free shot at goal or even award a free goal. In almost every circumstance, you will just escalate the penalty awarded just by one. So instead of a spot foul where the occurrence was, you would move it up to the next 30-yard line or, as we see the other penalties we'll get to, you would move it up just one. Um, but case-by-case case scenario, and it's your discretion to think, no, I actually need to escalate it significantly more than that. Next up is penalty number one. And just generically, that's a 10-yard throw from the spot where it happens. And the wording for it is penalty one, one. For the side that is fouled, a 10-yard throw from the spot at which the foul is committed, two, the ball must travel at least 10 yards in any direction. No player shall approach closer than 10 yards from the spot where the throw is to be taken. If the throw is not accepted as a pass, the ball must hit the ground before the thrower can touch the ball. Um, there's a lot in that little one and I actually think could be edited a little bit. But starting off says the ball must travel 10 yards in any direction. Uh, important thing to note for that is in a missed goal, so when you, someone misses a goal and number three is bringing the ball back out with a 10-yard throw, um, that one has to be in a forward direction. And we had some other things in the past where certain 10-yard throws had to be in a forward direction. But right now, uh, 
you can throw it any direction that's on the field. Uh, the next part says no player shall approach closer than 10 yards from the spot where the throw is to be taken. Um, it has another little part to that sentence. It says if the throw is not accepted as a pass, the ball must hit the ground before the thrower can touch the ball. I think the if this throw is not accepted as a pass part is unnecessary. I think no matter what, the ball must hit the ground before the thrower can touch it. So um, I think if I were to do a further edit of this book, I'd remove that. Uh, next says, a 10-yard throw shall not be executed by a player until directed to do so by the umpire. If there are uh, some confusing umpires out there that aren't really clear on marking a spot and verbally saying, Here's your point, play, maybe making the waving motion with their rackets. They're making it very obvious that it, when it's appropriate to throw the ball, uh, if that umpire is unclear, often, just because of the confusion, a 10-yard throw may be taken before the umpire says play, uh, innocently, or the umpire may say play and not even get that point across to the thrower and the umpire may think, oh, you didn't do it when I told you. I remember at World Cup most recently, 2019, this was a problem. We had very loud crowds, very loud music, especially you know if the whistle blows and the umpires have something to say to the players, uh, that's when the music is blaring and then the action comes back on with the loud announcers in the crowd. Um, umpires had a very difficult time conveying this is where your spot is, this is when to take your 10-yard throw, and there were multiple occurrences of the ball being thrown back in from the sideline because they didn't carry out that 10-yard throw uh, like the umpire thought, but it was just innocent because of this, the noise. So as an umpire, try and really be uh, loud verbally and also with your actions. If you're holding your racket and you're pointing to a spot on the ground, it makes it clear. And then as it's time for them to play, you move that racket forward like you're shooting a goal, underarm shot at goal, and it shows them that it's okay whether they can hear you or not. Um, okay, next. The player may throw from a stationary position or moving provided the throw is executed from the spot marked by the umpire. I don't like this rule or this penalty or this section part of the penalty. Um, I like rules and penalties as often as you can to say you're not allowed to do something. Uh, or if this happens this is the next thing that should happen. Uh, play, rules that say you are allowed to do something um, can end up getting you down a rabbit hole of being confused, confusing. It's much more clear to have it phrased in the negative. So saying this one again, the player may throw from a stationary position or moving. Well, if you don't say that at all, you're not telling them that they can't. And so by not saying anything, you're allowing them to do that. By writing it down in words, you, especially in a rule book, um, you leave it to interpretation and you better get the wording just right so that everybody understands exactly what you're trying to say. So this one saying you are allowed to do it from a stationary position, um, as long as it's from the spot, I think could be completely removed. We already have in, a, in another part, the first part saying where it has to be from the spot. So I would remove that in the future. Next up is the 10-yard throw shall be executed within a reasonable amount of time. 
reasonable amount of time is brought up multiple times in the rule book, and it has to do with when a player has the uh, the ball and is ready to start play again. We have to make sure that a delay of game situation isn't something that we allow players to have the opportunity to do. the The flow of the game needs to be in full control of the umpire so that players can't take it to their advantage. So. A 10-yard throw shall be executed in a reasonable amount of time will differ depending on the game circumstance. Um, it would often happen if uh, players aren't ready to catch a pass, and you say, here's your point, play, and, a, and the person is piddling around and doesn't uh, take their 10-yard throw when you tell them to, um, you can say they didn't execute the 10-yard throw appropriately because you didn't do it in a reasonable amount of time after I told you to, um, to keep the game flowing. The next one, the player taking the 10-yard throw has first call on the ball at 10 yards. So 10-yard throws are, I don't know, maybe always broken. The way that a 10-yard throw goes, you take a 10-yard throw, you as a thrower are the one that has first call on the ball at 10 yards. You also aren't allowed to touch it until it goes 10 yards. And so as soon as it goes 10 yards and one inch, the 10 yards and the width of a skin of the ball, then you no longer have first call on the ball. And so really there is no place by the rules that you have first call on the ball. Um, there is just a point, not a, a region. And to fix this, the way that I coach umpires and the way that the game works in my head is I don't have a 10-meter or a 10-yard stick every place that I put a 10-yard point for someone to throw. I have to make my best judgment on did that go 10 yards or not. I would say that if I were to guess my margin of error would be maybe three or four yards, maybe a yard short and a couple yards long, um, to me, I'd have a hard time differentiating if it was shorter or longer than 10 yards. And I coach all umpires that I see to give the benefit of the doubt on a 10-yard throw to the thrower. The person taking a 10-yard throw is being, most of the time, awarded for the other team doing something wrong. You are trying to award them the ball. It just happens to be that we, bring, we, we hand them the ball in the package of a 10-yard throw. That's just how players enter onto the field if they're awarded the ball. So if you award a player a ball and you're unsure of, do you think he was wrong or do you think the other guy was wrong? Well, if you're unsure and it's unclear to you if it's too short or too long, give the benefit of the doubt to the thrower. Uh, our previous rule books had rules and then some guidelines throughout, and I don't have it handy, but it did say something about between nine and 15 yards, you should give the you know you should give them 15 yards. Well, now as an umpire, I'm not sure where 15 yards is, and I think that starts to get stretching it pretty long. And uh, anyways, I think it's much better and clearer to have the rule just as it states that you have first call on the ball at 10 yards. No one's allowed to interfere with you until 10 yards, and then the margin of error is the area to which a player can have that window of safety. Um, I hope that's clear. Moving on. Failure to execute the penalty 
properly will result in a throw-in from the nearest sideline. So any of the things that the thrower could do wrong, um, they could, at low levels, you see them try to do a bounce just out of habit, which means the ball doesn't go 10 yards, or they touch it before it goes 10 yards. If they don't do it at the spot where you mark, they don't do it in the appropriate amount of time after you say play that you feel like is, is reasonable. Um, all of those things is them not being able to carry out the penalty that you've awarded them, and the restart of play is always a lineup from the nearest sideline. Um, okay, wonderful. We're done with one. Penalty one. Penalty two is very similar and much shorter. Penalty one was a 10-yard throw from the spot where the foul occurred. Penalty two is a 10-yard throw, but now moving it up to the next 30-yard line. Um, we'll go ahead and read through it, and then we'll discuss. One, a 10-yard throw advanced to the central spot on the next 30-yard line to give advantage to the team fouled is what a penalty two is. Um, what it's saying is instead of a spot foul, that would not be an advantage. Say someone down hit would be an example. You now move it up to the center of the next 30-yard line. The next part says the subsections of the first penalty, two through five, also apply to this penalty. So the description of who has first call at 10 yards and the rest of the 10-yard throw um, description is not repeated. It's just referred back to. Um, and that's it. So it's exactly like the first one, except instead of the spot where it happens, it gets moved to the next 30-yard line. Uh, you can also see in this next 30-yard line, even though it's on the 30, they can still throw in any direction. There's nothing stopping them from throwing a backwards 10-yard throw back into midfield if they're coming into their area, um, which, is, which is interesting, I think. And I don't think we used to have that in previous rule books. All right, penalty number three. So now you've given them a penalty on the spot, you've moved it up to the next 30. To escalate it even more, you would move it up to the D, which would be a free shot at goal. Penalty three, number one. An awarded shot on goal from a central spot immediately outside the D. So central spot of the D, right at the top of the D, and immediately outside the D. So they are able to legally take a shot at goal, but they are as close to uh, the the 11 meter circle, or the, ten, the, the D as possible. Uh, the ball must be a shot at goal. So it's not a 10 yard throw. They can't take a 10 yard throw to the side and, and move around. They have to take a shot at goal. And the number three may defend the shot on goal from a stationary position, at least 10 yards from the spot of the throw. So a free shot at goal is one of the few things that happens different in the game. You know, uh, a lineup and a missed goal and all that. A free shot at goal is kind of special. This particular part of the of the uh, penalty three, where it says the three can defend, but it has to be from stationary position, ten yards away, um, comes from international and I believe Australian play, and they have it very different. But um, they would have problems with the number three standing in between the goalpost and charging the number one, and if they did it the way that they were trying. They would time it to where, as their horse is approaching that 10-meter boundary, the ball is being released from the number one's hand. And as the ball is flying through the air, they can close the gap 
and have a better chance at deflecting the, the uh, shot at goal. Well, having a number one running towards where the ball's being thrown and having a number three running towards the number one isn't great. And so um, I believe International said, we don't like that. We want you to be in a stationary position. Another thing that's interesting about this is the international versus American stuff and how you design uh, the game. I believe 10 meters and 11 yards is a similar distance. I guess I could look right now, but I'm not going to. But I think in the game, the way the game is designed, it does make a big difference in the wording. So we make the defender stay 10 yards away. If the D was a 10-yard D, there would be no legal place for the defender to stand and try and defend the goal. Uh, luckily, here we have an 11-meter, uh, which gives a 3-foot, you know, a horse, just enough to fit a horse right in there and still be on the field and 10 yards away, and it simplifies things a little bit. In the international rules, and I haven't looked at them super recently, but... I believe they allow the player to be stationary and be as close as eight meters away from them, which gives them a little window on the back there. Um, just a little interesting trivia, and I like that we have 11, so we don't have to do something weird. We have a spot for the three to stand, but we do ask that the, stand, the three is stationary and stays 10 yards away. Penalty four, super easy, quick one, is... So we've already done 10 yards from the spot, moved it to the 30, moved it to the D. The next thing we can do is just give a free goal, and that's it. There's only one thing to it. It says the side fouled is awarded one goal. Uh, there are lots of times where this happens in the rule book. Uh, I do think that it wouldn't be terrible to put a second little bullet point underneath this one that says that play will restart at a lineup at the T. Um, I think just because we play polo cross all the time, it's just natural and that's what you do whenever that happens. Um, but because it's not specifically written in there, then, uh, I feel like it's missing. I think it, it, it should show them what to do after that goal is awarded. Next up penalty five, we're getting serious now. We've already been so mad at somebody that we awarded the other team a free goal. What do we do now is we kick them off the field. This is a very rewarding and wonderful thing to be able to do as an umpire, especially to people that you don't expect to have uh, an outburst or something that, that warrants kicking them off the field. Uh, but I've only had the opportunity to kick maybe five or six people off a field ever. And uh, again, it's a, it's a treat as an umpire, I think. So here's penalty five. The umpire excludes a player from a portion of the match in addition to any other penalty. If you had something that was very aggressive and very strong and you needed to kick somebody off the field, it could also start with the other team with the ball or whatever else you feel like is appropriate. That's what it's saying. Uh, next, a substitute player may not be played during the period the player is excluded. So that team is penalized. They are in trouble. You don't get to have a substitute player. And later on, we'll see even when you kick them off for the whole day or for the weekend, um, that team is now a two-person section. The excluded player shall not re-enter the field 
until such time as indicated by the umpire. Typically, two minutes in a uh, standard six by six game um, or four by eight game is what you see. But the other times that I see it, it's fairly common. Is they'll just they see there's a minute and a half left on the chukka, and they just exclude them for the following for the rest of that chukka. Um, but whatever the case, you will tell the table, please start a clock for X amount of time. And you would tell the player, stand here. You actually get to tell them where to go. And you can leave there and interplay again after the time has elapsed. The play Next bullet point. A player should stand off the sideline with his or her horse at a spot indicated by the umpire. I feel like this is kind of like when I was a kid at the pool. And, you know, you're playing too rough or running or something and, the, and the, the lifeguard points to a spot and puts you in timeout and you have to go to that specific spot and think about what you did. Um, often, like I said before, this is going to be close to the table so that you can use the table as your timer and the table can be the one that releases them back on the field because you're going to have other stuff going on. Okay, next up, the penalized team has the right to reorganize the affected section to their best advantage. Um, actually, there's a typo in here. To best advantage, I don't believe is right. But anyways, what it's saying there is if my number one did something bad and was removed from the field for two minutes, I can actually take his shirt, be the number one, and give him one of the other positions so that there's a chance we might score still, or however you feel like you'd like to change it up. But the next part is interesting. The sidelined player must return onto the field in the vacant position. So if you lose that number one shirt and you decide to swap it out for a number two and you play the number one for a while, well, when that player comes back on the field, they will need to keep the shirt on of the number two and just fill in the vacated spot. They don't get to go back to their original position until the next chuck if they decide. Uh, last on this is, in all instances, the player sent off shall be the subject of a written report by the tournament umpire to both the chief umpire and the APA, or chief umpire of the APA, and the executive administrator of the APA. So the way that tournament umpires and rules and changes and umpiring program, all that stuff hinges on noticing trends that happen that are dangerous or confusing or rule conflicts or anything and having that information sent back. If there's a player that gets sent off the field for talking back to the umpire or for wild swinging, and that happens one weekend, well, that's an interesting story, and uh, you can laugh at them at the bar, but there's not a lot to it. If we notice that five or six tournaments have gone by and he's been sent off, or this player has been sent off, it's probably a girl, multiple times, and the... Individual tournaments wouldn't recognize that that was happening because it's just one time, but the APA as an organization can see a trend happening, and then that would be dealt with by the board and grievances and all that stuff. Um, all right, next up is penalty number six. Uh, very similar to penalty number five, but just stepped up a little bit more. This is when a player is excluded from the remainder of a whole game or for the whole tournament in addition to any other penalty. The penalized team may reorganize when the player is sent off, just like we had talked about before. They can change shirts. In all instances, the player sent off shall be subject to the same written report we just talked about. Um, so when players 
get kicked off the field. That's an automatic write you up. We're going to keep watching for this in the future, hopefully, uh, kind of situation. Last one, number seven, is about horses. Uh, this is when a horse can be removed from the field. It says the umpire may order a horse off the field and disqualify the horse from playing again during the game or tournament if the horse is deemed in violation of the horses, in quotations, section. It's referring back to a previous section of the book uh, called Standards of Play, and I think it's number four, it says horses, and it talks about all the different things that could make a horse, or all the requirements that a horse uh, is bound to during the game, such as lamenesses, vices, uh, being under control, um, not a stallion, all, all the normal things that we require of horses. And if they aren't able to fulfill those requirements, then penalty seven would come into play. And if they're a violation, they would be disqualified from play. Next part's a little controversial. It says a substitute horse may be played, but must be of equal or lesser caliber in the estimation of the umpires and approved by the tournament umpire. I'm going to read the next one too. The tournament umpire will include details of the incident on the incident report, just like with the uh, with the player. So if a horse is having problems, hopefully that trend would be noticed and would be dealt with uh, by the APA as an organization specifically to that person. It also shows maybe not even one person, but if a horse is lamed by a certain situation, say a crossing, uh, there's a crossing that happens in the area that lamed my horse. Well, that would also be any horses that can no longer play are mandatory ride up to be, to be logged for long term. And hopefully if this is a trend that's happening where not just you, but other people are injuring their horses in certain parts of the game, then we can adjust the game to help the safety of the sport and we won't be blinded just by what we're seeing on one weekend. Um, that controversial part, because we have this in here and because we don't allow horses to do things like kick, uh, I ran into a problem while I was chief umpire and I had someone that's very knowledgeable in the law arena say that if you're documenting that there's this problem and it's unsafe, potentially even injuring people, and you don't have a way to keep it from happening next time. So if you kick someone off the field for doing something extremely dangerous, or if you have a horse that is removed from being dangerous or injuring someone, the very next weekend they can show up with that same horse and play again with no one really knowing what's going on. Um, and then that horse kicks someone else and there's a liability on the APA because we knew about a problem that was a safety issue and documented it and allowed people to continue in that unsafe scenario. So what I did as chief umpire, and I don't have this written down anywhere, I hope that this is a standard that continues, is if a horse is removed because of behavior, I would contact, after a tournament report would come back to me, I would contact the owner or the rider of that horse I would try and see what happened and have them give me a reason why they think it's okay to play again. Times where this has happened is a horse is biting and they say, we can play again, we're going to put a muzzle on it, or a horse is kicking, oh, well, that's because it's an inexperienced rider, we tried to let this 
fancy horse, go play low level, and it uh, the inexperienced rider is the reason why it had the problem, and we won't have that again, or we're going to make sure we go to bunch and bunch of practices and we don't we put the horse in the same scenario and we don't have problems so them giving me a reason why they think it's okay to come back gave me a uh, kind of a pass liability wise and allowed them to come back in now because they're gauged and that that documentation stays for a while I also let them know that for me I'm giving them a year a season, a year's worth of probation. And if this horse comes back and kicks again, it's likely to be kicked out of the APA for its life. So it's fairly severe and fairly strong, and it should keep the liability and the safety factor um, as good as it can be so that the APA is doing as much as they can and the umpiring is doing as much as they can to keep the problem horses away from pull across. Um, okay, Back just a little bit, it says a substitute horse may be played, but has to be a lower caliber, equal or lesser caliber. Has a couple major problems with it, I think. First of all, I don't think it's right for a horse that has behavior problems to be able to be swapped out in most occurrences. I think, just like a player, that they did something bad and maybe they shouldn't be able to replace that horse. I, I'm on the fence on that one. I can go either way. Currently, they can be replaced. The horse that they're able to replace it with has to be of equal or lesser caliber. We have a similar wording with, uh, with players that are replacing injured players, but we have a rating system for players. So it's easy for us to say, yes, you are the same rating or, less, or you're lesser rated than the person that's injured. So we're saying that's okay. Horses don't have that luxury of having the ratings, and horses have a really strange impact on how effective a player is, you know, a really important impact. You can have an amazing horse that's a horse of the year, best horse ever, that's just putting around with a kid in low level that's really not giving that kid as much as the horse has to offer. And at the same time, um, you can have a kind of low-quality horse that's never played polo cross, maybe even a polo horse, first time on the polo cross field, and it be stronger than a horse that was having trouble. Uh, whenever I would certify umpires, I would give them scenarios that a tournament umpire might come, in, uh, come across that don't really have a correct answer. And I like this one a lot because I don't think it has a correct answer. It's a how you deal with it in the situation. And since this is Ryan Murphy's podcast, and I talked about it on one of the other ones I did, uh, I'll, re I'll bring it up again. Um, his horse, he's playing A grade. It's rearing constantly, constantly rearing. He's not able to be in a lineup. He's not able to defend or carry the ball. He's really just out there watching. If that horse gets pulled off for behavior, if the rearing gets to where it is dangerous and that horse is now unable to play, disqualified from play, what can we put him on that is equal or lesser caliber? Now, I like to think that you don't give a team an advantage for having done something wrong. So any horse we gave them was going to be an advantage. It was a very difficult situation in the circumstance, and I reluctantly allowed them to talk me into letting him ride a uh, – medium level horse for the rest of the weekend and he was more effective so I, I failed but I tried to do what, what I could at the time um, 
we also have had two main different schools of thought on how to calibrate horses, how to judge horses on against other horses. And the first one, which is uh, kind of easy, I guess, is where the horse plays normally. So if a horse is an A-grade horse, maybe it can't fill in at a lower level, or if a horse is a C-grade horse, it could fill in for A-grade. Uh, in that way of thinking about things, every horse that goes out in A-grade could be replaced by anyone else because it will either be an A-grade horse or lesser. Um, there are lots of times where this has happened where an A-grade player, uh, their horse goes out, their horse was a brand new horse, polo horse, never played polo cross before, but it, they did well. It was They did fine. Their horse goes out, they bring in the best horse that they have. They are significantly better by bringing in that new horse. And it, if you judge it by an A-grade horse versus an A-grade horse, then that's legal. If you judge it the other way by, is this uh, horse swap an advantage, then you would disallow it. So I think it would be good for the umpire organization, everybody to come together and really say, this is how we calibrate horses. This is how we uh, judge horses against each other. And this is our standard um, what I use is, is that player gaining advantage by the horse substitution? And that's the end of the penalties section. Um, I thought that would go really well with the penalties section is uh, doing lineups and doing restart after a missed goal. So let's do that now. Let's start with the missed goal. In my book, it's page 27. It's rule number eight in the rules of play section. Game restart after missed goal. Should a shot on goal fail, the defending number three will be awarded a 10-yard throw from a central point on the 30-yard line. It used to say, previous rules, this book said, uh, at a point on the 30-yard line, even with where it went out of bounds. I took that out whenever we made this new rule book because I didn't think it was really necessary for one, but also if a number three say, or if a number one say, shoots the ball and it gets hung up in their racket wildly and it goes way out wide, goes out of bounds out the back line and it was a shot at goal, then they used to mark it way over close to the sideline, which by missing a goal badly, you actually made it harder on the number three, which I don't know that that's appropriate. So we put it at a central spot on the 30-yard line. Next, the ball in this instance must be thrown at least 10 yards in a forward direction. Right now, we're going to get into some 10-yard throw wording that's similar to the other side, but isn't exactly, which there are times where it's intentionally not exactly like a 10-yard throw penalty one, the way it's written. And there's other times where I actually think it has problems. But um, So it has to be in a forward direction. That is one of the intentional differences. And number uh, three that's carrying a 10-yard throw, carrying a missed goal 10-yard throw from that spot on the 30 will have a number one following them and coming into the, into the middle of play, into the midfield. And in that instance, you have to go forward. You have to do a 10-yard throw into the midfield. Next, at the time of the throw, the opposing number one is the only player allowed within 10 yards. So right there, that part of that sentence is saying, no player may be within 10 yards of the point at the time the throw is taken. 
So by saying that player is the only one, you're also saying none of the other ones can. Of the spot where it's throws to be taken place. Okay. The number one player of the opposing side must follow the number three out, but no closer than nose to hip. And in such a position as to not interfere with the throw by the number three. So where this is, what this is saying is you're allowed to be within 10 yards, but you have to be following them out, which means behind them. And you have to be no closer than your horse's nose to their horse's hip when the throw is taken. Also, you're not allowed to interfere with taking their 10 yard throw. Um, and they have first call, like we're about to see. In fact, we'll go ahead and read it. No player shall attempt to touch the ball or interfere with the player taking the throw until the player and ball have traveled more than 10 yards, or the player has attempted to take possession after the throw, whichever comes first. So what they're saying is, which I think this is poorly worded, I think it should be worded more like the back of the book, but it's saying... The same thing as our other 10 yards is that no player may interfere uh, until the ball or the number the, the ball thrower has gone 10 yards, whichever one goes first. Um, and they have first call on it. Next, the player taking the throw shall have first attempt at the ball, provided that the ball remains accessible from the player's line of travel. I don't like that one either. Um, because it says player taking the throw shall have the first attempt at the ball. That already uh, is, is there that in our regular 10-yard throw wording, and here it doesn't say at 10 yards. So if you just read this rule, you could read it wrong by saying, I threw it 30 yards, and the player taking the throw shall have first attempt at the ball, provided that the ball remains accessible. Well, it was accessible of my line of travel, and I threw it 30 yards, so I should have the first crack at it. That is not how the game is designed, and it is poorly worded here. And you can see how conflicts in this section versus another section could really cause problems on the field and confusion. And the last one says, Should the throw not travel 10 yards, the umpire shall throw in from the nearest sideline in midfield 5 yards from the 30-yard line. Again, I see flaws there. What they're saying here, because in the back of the book, in the penalty section, it says... If the 10-yard throw is not carried out successfully or in the amount of time or whatever, uh, you throw it in from the nearest sideline. Here it only says if it does not travel 10 yards. And I also think it should say in this section here, if it's not done an appropriate amount of time, if it's not done at the spot where the umpire marked and so on, to reflect the same idea and the same better wording that the penalty section has. Um, so the difference on this one is this is going to happen on the 30-yard line. If you were to throw the ball in and ask the players to line up on the, you know, on the 30-yard line, then there will be several players in an area they're not allowed to play in the, in the end zone. So what you do is you move the ball where it's to be thrown in, five yards in the direction of travel that the 10-yard throw was being taken. In this instance... There's a number three taking a 10-yard throw into midfield. And if they're unable to carry out their 10-yard throw, you would mark it in midfield, five yards away from the 30-yard line, uh, allowing all six players to line up in midfield. Okay, I have one more thing, and then we'll have kind of all the skeleton of the rules covered, and we can talk about really the, 
the good stuff in the middle next time. This one's lineups. The lineup section is very early on in the rules of play, their lineups area. So section three, rules of play, the third rule says lineup. First off, every game starts with a six-person lineup from the sideline closest to the timekeeper. A lineup occurs at the center field, T, after each goal is scored on the side opposite the most recent lineup. So the game starts, lineup closest to the goal scoring table. That's actually great because you can make sure that the timer's ready and all that. And then the next line says that you will start at a center T opposite of the last one. So the first one's going to start by the timekeeper and then it'll alternate. A reasonable amount of time will be allowed for players to line up. Here's that reasonable word again. Players are expected to return at least at a trot. So we did have to write in a little guideline there, a little rule that shows what reasonable is, but it's still up to you to decide if they came back in a reasonable amount of time or not. Times where they might not come back reasonably is if they, after a goal is scored, use the opportunity to get off their horse, pick up their racket, or adjust a bell boot, or whatever thing they need to do, chores they need to do while there's downtime, we are not going to wait on them. So even if when they get back on their horse, they race to the lineup, if there are five people there, I'm throwing the ball in, and we won't allow them, we won't wait for them, that would be unreasonable. Other times it would happen where people don't come back reasonably is if a really high stakes game is happening and a player is trying to use a time advantage and eat up a little bit of clock, they can come back more slowly and uh, take a big chunk of, of the clock out. Uh, you might have two sections you're playing with. Your section is losing terribly against the other, and all you need to do is stop the bleeding so your other section can come save you. And one theory, one strategy might be just burn the clock whenever you can. We need to stop that from happening. The clock is the umpire's. So... If it's not a reasonable amount of time, you would award the ball to the other team or you'd throw the ball in without them. Um, next, after a reasonable amount of time, a team that is not lined up properly or gains advantage through improper positioning will be penalized. The whole idea with a throw-in is to try and make it even. For the umpires, we want to let the ball enter the field in a way that's the most fair way to enter the field. Lineups as a player, is some of the biggest strategy and the biggest battles are going to happen in and just slightly before the lineup. Moving your horse for a stronger position and trying to get ready for whatever's going to happen when the ball's thrown in so that you get the ball and you have an advantage is what the players are going to be trying to do. So what we need to do as umpires, when we throw the ball in or we're waiting to throw the ball in, all six of those players need to have an equal advantage. If a player is improperly positioned, say a number three is already halfway turned out, or one of the players has moved the opposition player over, so now they're in the middle and able to catch the ball more easily, those situations should be recognized, and we'll see there's a penalty one, and we would award the ball to the other team uh, for moving for advantage ahead of time. We're going to talk about this more in a second. Let's get done with this. Players must line up behind the tee with equal advantage. There's that equal advantage thing that's going to be a theme in this whole section. 
Players will line up in two parallel lines, knee to knee, facing the umpire. I don't like this rule because it's not saying you're not allowed to do something like I've preached about before. Um, we, I think this rule is kept in there. I think this was there before also. Um, in order to design the game, to kind of show somebody if they're only looking at a rule book, what, where the people should be. I don't love the wording of they should be in two parallel lines knee to knee because it gives the opportunity for somebody to say your knee was in front of my knee or behind my knee or not touching my knee. I don't know. I just don't love that wording. But it's only there to um, des design the game, to give a little structure and show people how it should be done. Next one, each section must line up side by side on the side of the field nearest the goal it is defending. So you line up away from your goal, so you have to go through the opposition to go to your goal. Uh, one thing to think about on that one is a one and a three in the area. Just make sure sometimes they don't line up right, especially lower level. So as an umpire, just it's easy to think about it in the main part of the game, but if you throw the ball into just two people in the area, this still applies. The number one needs to be farther away from the goal that they're scoring. Next, player must line up in order. One, two, three. Number one first, number two second, number three third. Next, the umpire will throw the ball in by hand with an overhand throw high above the player's shoulders between the opposing ranks of players and within reach of the player's racket. This one is, again, just to define what happens. I, again, don't like rules in here that you can't blow a whistle and said you did something wrong. If anybody does anything wrong here, it's the umpire. Um, they do show what to do in that situation, but I think that's more umpiring coaching. Anyways, this rule's in there just to show how it happens. The following rule, like I said, says in the event of the ball not being thrown incorrectly, the umpire is to blow the whistle and repeat the throw. I am not someone that throws the ball in very well, at least recently, and there are lots of other people that have their own style of throwing the ball in. It's a pleasure when you have that fast ball coming right through up at the head height, right through the center, and goes out the back beautifully. Uh, not a lot of people can do that. A lot of weaker, I say weaker, a lot of people that don't have that throwing strength might throw a little lob in order for them to get the ball to the back of that lineup and have everybody kind of have a chance at it. It has an, a higher arc, which actually takes the twos and sometimes the ones out of reach of the ball. Um, you do the best that you can as an umpire. If you feel like it's fair, you don't have to stop what's going on. If you threw the ball out and you have that arcing lob and you realize that time maybe the twos couldn't reach it or it was at the extent of where they might be able to reach, as long as one team didn't have advantage over the other team, when the ball comes out the back, even if the twos didn't couldn't quite reach it, I would let play go on and uh, try and do better next time. There are so many strict rules about the lineup on how everyone is. In fact, the next rule here, no player may make any move for advantage until the ball has left the umpire's hand. I mean, really, every move you make in a lineup is going to be for advantage. I mean, standing up in your stirrups, you know, before the ball is thrown in, I'm picturing juniors right now, uh, with their rackets held up real high, they're doing that because they think they're getting an advantage by being taller and whatever. 
So it's the umpire's discretion to be more strict or less strict in the lineup with what they call and which throws they call back. Your goal is to make sure that is as even as possible advantage-wise. And if you see that players are starting to take advantage in one place or another, then you might start calling that specific thing much stronger. Another thing to note, which I think higher-level umpires recognize, probably because they've been frustrated with it when it wasn't called against the players they were playing against, is if the number one is returning from a goal that they had scored, they're often the last one back to the lineup. And even though they're coming back in a reasonable amount of time, they're coming back with some speed, and because they're the last one in the lineup, as soon as they're in, the ball is thrown. But they still have some forward momentum. And as a number one, just getting your horse just slightly in front of the other horse is a huge advantage, let alone give it some momentum. So even if when the ball's thrown in, they were right at the tee, but they hadn't come to a stop yet, they're going to be able to carry that ball if they catch it. They're going to catch it easier, and they're going to be able to carry it through the other number one very easily with the momentum they're carrying. As an umpire, just recognize that when the, when the number ones come back, you need to have their momentum stopped before you throw the ball in to make sure the other number one has an equal chance and isn't at a disadvantage. The last part in lineups is during a lineup, if the ball is deflected out of bounds before clear possession is established, the ball will be thrown in again at a lineup. Possession is defined as a ball being in the net of a player's racket. So this is a new rule, and not new to most people, but it's uh, new to this rule book. And it came out of trying to conform with some of the norms of international play. And internationally, they don't define possession. And when we introduce this rule, possession, you know, if a person has possession of the ball, what does that mean? Does it mean they've cradled or that it was in their net or that they've just touched it and it went out of bounds? Because often a player will try to catch it and just touch it and it goes out of bounds and you would, uh, beforehand, the other team would be awarded the ball. Now, the player has to have possession or if the ball comes right back out, you throw it back in. There's a key word in here. I'm going to read it again. During a lineup, if the ball is deflected out of bounds before clear possession is established. Possession is important. But as an umpire, I put the word clear in there because it made it easy as an umpire to make this call, this determination. With the word clear and the word possession being defined, not only here but in the definition section, um, then you're able to, so possession is if the ball's in their net, and if it was clear to you that it was in someone's net specifically, then that would be penalized and the other team would get the ball. If you're not sure, then it's not clear. So if you're not sure if it was actually in their net or not, then you'd throw the ball back in again. So possession is if it's in the net, and as an umpire, it has to be clear to you that it was in the net of the racket before the ball went out of bounds. I think there's also a time limit when the, quote, lineup is happening, and then when the lineup is no longer happening. As soon as play starts, so the ball gets thrown in, players start moving, the ball goes to the ground, the ball is picked up or tried to get picked up, it's bouncing around. 
I think as soon as the ball has entered play, not just released from the hand, you know, if you throw it and it bounces off something and it comes right back out, then that came out of bounds during the lineup. But at some point, play has started and lineup has concluded. Uh, it's your judgment to say, no, the ball came in and went to ground, and when you went to go pick it up, it flung it out, and you picked it up after the lineup. You weren't trying to pick it up during the lineup, so it's not quite the same uh, standard as during when the actual lineup is happening. So just immediately, as the ball is being thrown in, and immediately comes back out is the only time where you're going to give someone a pass if they were to say bat it out or something like that. All right, we'll finish up with control of the game, kind of. It's not a rule, but we'll just talk about it since it's coming up in my head. In a lineup specifically, you can control the mood of the game, especially the mood of the lineups. Uh, very aggressive, out-of-position lineups that aren't called, that you're not telling them to get back behind the line, you're not telling them to uh, position themselves correctly or whatever, will escalate and get worse and worse. Often, the standard that is theirs is being followed by one of the players, say that the number one stands right as close to the T as they can so they can get as much advantage legally as they can. And the opposing number one is a footstep in front of them, which gives them an advantage if they catch it. They can catch it easier and they can get out in front easier. And if nothing's being called while that player takes that extra step, then the first player, the next time they come into the lineup, isn't going to let that happen again, and they're going to make sure they're a step in front of them. And this trend will happen continually. I remember watching the, uh, the state games at World Cup in Australia, and there were times where the number ones were off the field. Not only were they in, had they gone past the tee, but when the ball was thrown in, they, the front legs were actually out of bounds. If they caught the ball, they'd be out of bounds. And I thought that was just so silly that they would let it get to that point. The umpires have just relinquished control of the game and decided that they it's not possible to control them or it's not important to control them then. And it got to the point to where the only umpires I saw, and I didn't see all the games, but the only umpires I saw that were successful at holding players back would physically use their horse to push the number ones backwards. They would turn sideways. There would be a number one's horse across the neck of the umpire's horse and a number one's horse across the butt of the umpire's horse. And the um, poor umpire has to throw the ball uh, into these players, and they thought that was a good way to just hold them back. Uh, the right way to do it is to make them do it. Just tell them that's wrong. It doesn't seem like rocket science to me, but it's strange how few people use that that strategy as an umpire. Just tell them you don't like what they're doing, penalize them for it, and they stop. Because games, especially heated games, are going to be trying, everyone's going to be trying to get every edge that they can. Every time you don't hold them to that standard, you're actually encouraging them to get worse. So the time to make your adjustments is early on in the game. This goes for anything. Back chat, rough play, uh, cheating in the lineups. If you're able to catch that stuff early and as an umpire establish this is my standard that I'm holding you to, then they're still going to try and wiggle and get as much advantage as they can, but they now know there's a strict line in the sand or 
a painted line on the field that they will be penalized for if they cross. So now that same jostling, instead of off the field on the sidelines, will happen behind the tee, and they're going to try and get every little inch and centimeter that they can behind the tee in a legal way. So I would encourage all the umpires, anytime that you have the game, feeling like it's starting to get out of control or nervous that if something were to happen again, it would get worse, to make sure you put a stop to it. I would like to conclude with another potentially broken part of the rules. The instance where um, a player is not in the lineup has come up recently. Uh, this is a player that, say, the number two now has a horse that's green and cannot get in the lineup, and they've decided they're going to position themselves off to the side of the, of the lineup and try to just omit themselves, disqualify themselves from the lineup, and enter play after the lineup is over. Uh, there's mixed feelings on this. The, the rules right here, we just went over them, said that they must line up in this specific way. You know, knee to knee, facing the umpire, behind each other, one, two, three, all that. They are breaking the rule by being out of the lineup. Uh, I actually don't care that much if they're out of the lineup. I like to put, uh, there's one rule in here that says they have to have equal advantage or no person can be no person can gain advantage by being out of position. Um, so I let that person lose advantage by being out of the lineup. Except for in the instance where being in that spot was an advantage. Uh, times where this would happen is the ball gets thrown in, that two is off to the side, and the ball gets deflected right over to where that number two is. And if that two decides to try and go for the ball or get in other people's way... Uh, they actually gained advantage for being out of the lineup. So you wouldn't call, or I wouldn't call them when I threw the ball in. But as the ball gets deflected to them and I recognize they're now, they were in an advantageous place, then you would blow that up. Or if the ball went out the back and now they were the first ones to it because they were off on their own instead of fighting the group, that would be an advantage and they should be penalized for that. Uh, the other kind of broken part is a question for the group, and I won't uh, give the answer because I don't know if I really know it. But in that same circumstance, the number two is out of the lineup for one reason or another, whether they're disqualified from play, kicked off the field, or can't get in the lineup, they're off to the side, whatever the case. Can the number three move up to the number two's position? In our definition of where they have to be, they're still facing the umpire, shoulder to shoulder, knee to knee. They are still lined up in order, one and three. Of course, the two is not in that lineup. But I leave it to you. I don't have the answer to that. I, in the, circum in the situation, as it was brought up, I would have to make a call one way or another. But as I'm recording this, I don't know how I'd call it. So maybe somebody could enlighten me on the right answer. And until next time, now we've got all the bones done. Let's get some meat and skin and all the good fat of the rule book. On the next one, join me again. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to this episode. What a tremendous opportunity to hear Daniel discuss our rulebook. I think it's extremely important that most beginner player can hear someone discuss it in great detail. I also think it's a great tool for someone that's driving to a tournament, wanting to touch up on the rules. Obviously, that's a huge advantage if you understand the rule, because it can definitely go against you if you don't. Here on Chucka Talk, we appreciate your feedback. Have you enjoyed the show? Do you have questions or comments? Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For a chance to be featured on the show, leave a voicemail by finding the Send Voicemail sidebar button on polacrossmadesimple.com. For more Polacross coaching, go to polacrossmadesimple.com. You'll find ebooks on how to become a great player and even on how to become a great coach. Find me on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a good one. Here on Chugga Talk, we appreciate your feedback. Have you enjoyed the show? Do you have questions or comments? Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For a chance to be featured on the show, leave a voicemail by finding the Send Voicemail sidebar button on polacrossmadesimple.com. For more Polacross coaching, go to polacrossmadesimple.com. You'll find ebooks on how to become a great player and even on how to become a great coach. Find me on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a good one.